And uh, we're, we're continuing this series on the promises of God, and this ties directly in, doesn't it, to our vision focus, draw near, and our, our vision focus verse, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And thinking about actually that, you know, God is a God of relationship, that he wants to have relationship with us, and as we take a step towards him, he takes a step towards us, and we grow in this wonderful relationship, and I'm guessing that for most of us, as that's been set, there's been that sense in our own journeys of faith that we've taken steps towards God and he's stepped towards us and it's been a dynamic over a number of years. And we're just hoping this year that in a sense, when this isn't something new, but in a sense we're recapturing something of that reality of relationship with God. You know, remember that uh, faith in Jesus is not a religion. It's not about religion, but it's about relationship that it's not about a set of rules, but it's a sense of growing in our knowledge and love of God and his love and our awareness of his love for us. And uh, within that relationship, as we think about draw near, there can be mindsets or barriers, things that can get in the way uh, of our journey in our relationship with God. And I'm sure all of us have experienced times in our own life where we've perhaps come up against a, a barrier, you know, a physical barrier. I remember once uh, I was on a holiday with my family and uh, me and my brothers, I think, were each driving our own car. And uh, as, as you do, as brothers, you think, right, what's the, what's the best route back? So uh, I think, you know, well, you know, I know the best way. I'll just click in my sat-nav. And uh, it was a bit of an old sat-nav. And so we started driving down this country lane and then we turned left. We came up to this river and on the, on the sat-nav was marked a bridge. Um, but the bridge only went halfway across the, ri- across the river. And so we came up against a barrier, which meant we couldn't cross uh, that river. And it's a bit like that with our relationship with God. Sometimes, you know, it's not to say that God doesn't love us and that he's not there and we don't sense him there. But we get to a point where we think, actually, we've reached a point here that we just feel like, yeah, actually, there's something blocking here. And, and sometimes that's about our mindset of who God is. Or sometimes that's, it's about our mindset of who we think God thinks we are. And so part of what we're doing over these next few weeks and have been doing already is thinking about what are the promises of God because we don't want to dwell on the negative although we do need to bring that to light so that God can address it but we want to dwell on the promises of God, the good things that God has given us and he does for us. And Romans 8 is just one of those passages that is packed full of the promises of God. And so we've already looked at Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 Therefore, there is no, now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. thought about actually, there is no guilt for us. We are set free. And remember, condemnation is about being with damnation, literally with judgment. But actually, we as uh, followers of Christ don't have that. We have conviction with victory. And the Holy Spirit convicts us and helps us to grow, but it's not a sense of uh, judgment. It's a sense of us growing and becoming more like Jesus. Then Boz, the following week, went on to think about what it is to be alive in the Spirit. The Spirit of God lives in us, and he is always with us. In a, in, in a sense, Boz was saying we can't get any closer to God than that because he is in us already. And in a sense, what we're doing with the promises of God is calling out something that is already a reality. It's not like we need to, to get something or, or, or acquire something in faith. Actually, God has given us everything. Think about Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We have been given everything, but in a sense what we're doing is saying, God, please reveal this to me. Please show me this. Please open my eyes to that reality. And then last week we were looking at that wonderful, wonderful promise that we are now children of God, that we're no longer slaves, we're no longer orphans, but we are 
God's children. And unpacking that, I talked about how we are led by the Spirit and this and I'll talk to a couple of you about this. I think it's just a wonderful reality that as charismatics, we think about led by the Spirit, kind of that guiding uh, and direction in our life. But it's much deeper than that. It is that, but it's much more. It's this sense of determination that God, the Spirit of God, is determining our lives, that he's got a plan for us, and he knows our future. We no longer need to live in fear. We looked at it last week as, as children of God, and we are adopted as children of God, and we are heirs. And this morning we turn to this idea of future hope, future hope, which is a promise for each one of us, no matter where we are, how old we are, our circumstances, that as followers of Christ, we have a future hope. Before we just go on to that in just a moment, just want us to recap uh, what I looked at last week as well in terms of promises and thinking about 2 Corinthians one twenty, where it says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Every promise is always yes. You know, I talked about how I or all of us can let people down. You know, we say we make a promise, but we don't fulfill that. But God never uh, does not fulfill his promise. His promises are always yes. And I also talked about as well that there, are pow- there is power in God's promises. So it's not that he just states something there is resource behind it, and it's the power of God who is the maker of heaven and earth. And so we talked about Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, says Paul, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. God is always true to his promises, and he backs up that truth with his power. And so today we think about future hope. And as we approach this in a moment, I just want to unpack a few things. But as we, as, as we approach this, just a couple of things I want to set kind of a context for this. And I think this is really important because it describes why we are where we are in light of both the past but also the future. And so when we're talking about the kingdom of God, we often talk about the now and the not yet of the kingdom. And this is in the context of Jesus Christ coming. He broke into history and he brought something in the kingdom of God. What did Jesus first say? When he started his public ministry, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near or the kingdom of God is near. And so Jesus brought something of the values of the kingdom of God to earth. And of course, they included many, many things, the fruit of the spirits, the healing ministry, um, but supremely his saving work on the cross, his resurrection, which gives us new life. But I imagine that you'd all agree with me that the fact is that Jesus has come, he's brought something of his kingdom and his blessing which we've experienced. I'm sure you'd all agree with me that everything's perfect now, isn't it? Everything's just rosy as Christians, everything flows just lovely and it's all wonderful. There's no issues at all. Anybody want to put their hand up and agree with that? No, I didn't think so. Actually, things can be really difficult, can't they, at times? And this is something of the now and the not yet of the kingdom. That Actually, there's the sense of the now that God has broken in, but there's also a sense there is more to come the now and the not yet of the kingdom. And as we think about future hope, it's really important that we hold these things together. Sometimes I think uh, we can have this over-realized emphasis of, you know, everything's nice, everything's great, everything's wonderful because God has broken in. But actually there is a very real uh, reality of the, the challenges that we face 
in our world today. And that really ties in with some of what Paul is talking about this morning. So let's move straight to should we, some of the teaching points I want to bring through to us. We've got four teaching points. You can see them on your notes, uh, one to four. I've not put them in yet, so you can't preempt working out what I'm thinking about. So you could try and guess, I guess, and I'll give you, some, give you a chocolate bar at the end or something, I guess, if you get, get it right. Um, so um, the first point that I want to say this morning is that we acknowledge in future hope we acknowledge the reality of suffering. In future hope, we acknowledge the reality of suffering. And so Romans chapter 8, verses 17 to 18, we read this. So this is the last verse of last week and the first verse of this week. Okay, So we're bridging the two passages. Romans 8, 17 to 18. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. In the now and the not yet of the kingdom, we recognize the very real presence of suffering in this world. Suffering in our own lives, suffering in the lives of those around us. And it's not just for Christians that we see this suffering. Of course, it's for for the whole of humanity that there's this reality of suffering, I guess for Christians we particularly can emphasise persecution, uh, but also in all of humanity we see disease, we see hunger, mental health illness, um, physical illness, bereavement, financial difficulties and death itself. And one of the things I love about the Bible that it doesn't skirt around this reality. The Bible is full of accounts of suffering, suffering of God's people and the suffering of humanity. Philip Yancey, um, uh, an American author, says this, the book of Genesis begins with an account of how evil and death came into the world. The book of Exodus recounts Israel's 40 years in the wilderness, a time of intense testing and trial. Don't worry, I'm not going to go through every book of the Bible. The wisdom literature of the Old Testament is largely dedicated to the problem of suffering. The book of Psalms provides a prayer for every possible situation in life. And so it is striking how it is filled with the cries of pain. And in fact, one psalmist really articulates this sense of distance and pain. He says in uh, Psalm 44, Awake, O Lord, why do you sleep? Why do you hide your face and forget our misery? This sense that the psalmist is talking of something of the the feeling of injustice about suffering um, in the world and that feeling of distance. And then we see in the New Testament that this theme continues in the New Testament books like Hebrews and 1 Peter um, are almost entirely devoted to helping people face relentless sorrows and troubles. And towering over all, Yancey goes on to say, the central figure of the whole of Scripture, Jesus Christ, is a man of sorrows. And so there's so much in the Scripture about suffering. And it's really important that we set this context um, for in a minute if we're in a moment of what I'm going to talk about, hope. And uh, <clears throat> it's particularly important as well, I think, we recognise Paul's own experience of hope. So when he, in a moment, sorry, his own experience of, pers- of suffering. And so when we talk in a minute about his experience of hope, it's really important we see this context. And so um, in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about all the different ways that he suffered. Um, here's the list, okay? It's quite a few. So he talks about him being imprisoned, flogged, exposed to death, Five times receiving the 40 lashes minus one. 
not sure why they emphasised the minus one. 39 seems as bad as 40 almost, but that was the way the Romans did it. Uh, Three times beaten with rods, once pelted with stones, three times shipwrecked, in danger from rivers, bandits, Jews, Gentiles at sea, from false believers, basically in danger from everything. Gone without sleep, known hunger, thirst, going without food, been cold, naked, And ultimately, we think Paul was executed for his faith. And so Paul experienced intense suffering. And I'm sure today there are those of us who have experienced intense suffering. There will be others here who are experiencing suffering at this time, whatever shape or form that may take. And it may be to a lesser or a greater extent, but nonetheless, there is a very real experience of suffering in our own lives and I just want to say to you if you're in that place at the moment where you're experiencing suffering I want to say that you are in good company don't feel that you've been alienated from God or his people but that God I believe still loves you and yet in that place of experiencing that suffering it can feel that God is far away and There's something here, isn't there, for all of us as Christians that we look to Jesus, that he is the one who ultimately suffered. But all of us suffer to some extent within our lives. And in the Bible, there's this picture um, of something beyond this. You know, one of the things that's interesting, looking at the secularists, uh, Richard Dawkins says he sees the ultimate reality as cold and indifferent and extinction as inevitable. I'm so glad I'm not a secularist. What a depressing view of the future of the world. And not only from the perspective of our our own perspective, but also from the perspective of truth. You know, we believe that God offers a very different picture of the future. And so that leads us to our next teaching point, which is, firstly, we acknowledge the reality of suffering. Secondly, we anticipate an unimaginably better future. Okay, so we anticipate an unimaginably better future. We read in Romans chapter 8 and verses 18 to 19, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. In other words, Paul is saying that the sufferings of this life are very real. Remember Paul's own experience of suffering and how he talks about that. But he's saying that they are not worth comparing to the glory that is to come. And I'll be honest with you, as I was preparing this, I was really wrestling with how I communicate this because taken from the wrong approach, this could be interpreted as Paul belittling suffering, which I don't believe he's doing given his own experience of suffering. And so what I think he's doing, actually, he's actually saying, you know, suffering is, is, is real. You know, we all experience it. But actually, if we are to compare the reality of suffering and the reality of the hope to come, there is no comparison. And so uh, when Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will, will be revealed in us, he is not dismissing the reality of suffering, but he is stating that the weight we should give it in relation to the future hope. He's saying, actually, this is so much better. 
And so let's unpack what we can say about this, what Paul is saying here. Well, what Paul is saying here is that suffering does not have the final word. Suffering is a reality, but it isn't the end of the road for those who know Jesus. Some of us today will have experienced intense suffering. Some of us may be experiencing intense suffering, but it doesn't have the final word. And uh, we're going to sing a song together later, a Hillsong song, and uh, it's What a Beautiful Name It Is. And these are some of the words from that song. Death could not hold you. The veil tore before you. You silenced the boast of sin and grave. The heavens are roaring. The praise of your glory. For you are raised to life again. What a powerful name it is. Nothing can stand against. What a powerful name it is. The name of Jesus. And so we get this picture of the great hope we have to look forward to in Jesus. The, um, the commentator... Douglas Moo says this, We must, Paul suggests, weigh suffering in the balance with the glory that is the final state of every believer. And so weighty, so transcendently wonderful is this glory that suffering flies in the air as if it had no weight at all. Now, I imagine for some of us this morning, that doesn't feel like the reality And it's really important that we are honest with our own feelings and emotions. For some of us, we've got a great sense, yeah, God is great and we're looking forward to what is to come. But for some of us, um, that hope might feel like a distant glimmer in the future. And so I just want to read us a story, um, a story that uh, Tim Keller uh, tells in his book on pain and suffering. And the story is actually by a, a lady called Emily. And this is what she says. If you had asked me what I was thankful for before September, I would have said that I am thankful for my family, my home, my job, and for God, for a husband who loves and cares for me, for four children, ages 14, 11, 9, and 5, who are healthy and happy for a home I never dreamed of I could have, for a career that follows me to work from home, use my brain, I get to make a difference for my company and my clients, And for a God that provided for those things, regardless of my worthiness. In September, completely out of the blue, my husband left me and our four children for someone else. Who left her husband and two children as well. This other family were friends of ours. We'd we'd vacationed with them on three separate occasions during the summer. I thought they were our friends. My heart died within me. This could not be happening. My Christian husband, the one who with me sat down with our kids and explained that while divorce does happen, it would never happen to us. We made a covenant, a promise to God and to each other no matter what. We will always be here for each other and for them. I sobbed and begged him not to go, that we would figure this out. No, he was leaving. I asked what, was going, what I was going to tell the kids. He said he didn't know. I told him, you can't just leave without telling the kids something. Surely this would hit them. He would not be able to look at these precious children and tell them what he, why he was leaving. But he did. He called them back downstairs from bed and told them he was leaving. They didn't understand. Is this for work? When will he be back? No, kids, I'm moving out. Not to come back, he left. We were crushed. 
After eight weeks, my heart was still crushed. God, is this really your plan? How could this be your plan? I know that you will heal my heart. I know that something good will come from this. But how and why this? I feel you. I feel people praying. But what is going to become of us? I have never been so angry. Our poor children are suffering terribly. Their father's wants come before their needs. I still love my kids, he says. Really? How can you love them and cause them such pain? After four months, God is beginning to heal me in a way I'm not sure I want to be healed. I want to see justice, but it is not mine to inflict. I am beginning to try to pray for him, not about him. I am beginning to pray for his heart to be healed, for him to come back, not to me, but back to God. I need to move on without him for now and maybe forever, but I have to forgive him to get through the bitterness. I will not be bitter for the rest of my life. But how am I going to make it? God says pray, so I do. I love my family and I will always love the man I married. I am praying for a miracle, for him to snap out of this and find his way back home. But I am also moving forward without him. I am planning and trying to continue with my life, with everything that needs to be done from a practical, spiritual, emotional and financial perspective. I'm going to pray for him on a regular basis. I'm going to love him, but I will not be a doormat. I'm going to support my family and I'm going to seek God's plan for our life. I'm going to forgive him, but I won't forget. Because if I forget, I won't be able to use what I learn to help others who may go through this nightmare. I need to feel the pain, allow God to heal that pain and transform me into someone that he had intended for me to become all along. Somehow I feel excited. It feels wrong in so many ways to be excited to be going through this nightmare. It has now been six months. My situation has gotten worse, and yet I feel truly blessed. My husband is still gone, still with his girlfriend. He has told me that they will be a part of our kids' lives, and I need to get used to that and not hate her. He told me that if she was my enemy, then I was his. My kids are stealing, still dealing with the impact their dad had left on the fact their dad had left. They are depressed, angry, confused, and frustrated. My oldest has started questioning his faith. I've never had a big tragedy in my life. Never really had to depend on God. My image now is just completely collapsed, and I and I feel that He is only carrying me, and I see that He is awesome. In the midst of this horrible situation, where my whole identity and where my family has been attacked, I see glimpses of what God is doing and how my life and our lives will be changed. And I get excited to see who I get to be at the end of this. Now, that was quite a long passage, I realized, but I wanted to share it because actually I think it's a real, real wrestling with the reality of suffering. And I think it's sometimes easy for us to gloss over that reality in church and say, well, you know, just pat you on the back and actually it'll all be okay. You know, Jesus loves you and you've got a wonderful thing to look forward to. But actually suffering is very real 
uh, for some of us here, but also for those of us who perhaps haven't experienced that level of suffering, that actually as we come alongside other people, it's really important that we sit with them and allow them to voice the reality of their suffering. And I love the honesty of this woman who articulates with integrity before God the suffering that she's experiencing, the joys that she's experiencing before God in that suffering, but also voices in those joys, also the dark side of those joys as well, and the challenges that she experiences. And so God wants to bring us his hope in the midst of this. And so Emily, despite the tragedy of her situation, saw hope ahead. She said, and then you see it, the sun is perfectly clear. And this sense that as she came through, she saw God before her. And so as we have this sense of the weight of the imaginably better future, we see the anticipation for all creation, that actually all creation looks forward to the revealing of God. In, uh, in Romans chapter 8, verse 19, we read, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. And interestingly here, what Paul is actually talking about, he's talking about the created order other than humans, so the non-human uh, creation. And he's, he's saying that actually there's an expectation among them. Now, not for one minute thinking that an elephant is having a conversation with an antelope and thinking, you know, I'm really looking forward to that day when the, when the sons of God are, are revealed. No, there's this sense of eager desire throughout the whole of creation for something better. And uh, we also see this within the, uh, within the human creation as well. And uh, Paul writes in verse 21 that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Are you aware that, that, that it seems everything seems to decay or goes bad? You know, I, uh, I paint a shed and then a few years later I've got to paint it again or, or uh, there's wood, a piece of wood in the garden and it rots or we see rusting metal. You know, my car, it's uh, got a bit of rust on it. I think, oh, the next MOT, is that going to get through the MOT? Or um, plants wither, animals die. There's all, always this sense of, um, of, of the creation's bondage to decay. But in, in this context, the hope is that God breaks through, that he brings his light that actually one day this will all be put to one side. And uh, you may remember that uh, early on when we were looking at the five acts of creation, we talked about the fall and the impact of that on the whole of creation and right at the center of creation was the tree of life. And in Revelation, we get this wonderful picture of the tree of life. It says in Revelation 22, the angel uh, showed me the river of the water of life as crystal as clear flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And so God is reconstituting that tree of life um, that will bring uh, God's life to us. And then in Revelation um, chapter 21, we get this wonderful picture of what is to come, the future that is to come. And uh, Revelation chapter 21, we read, uh, they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, 
for the old order of things has passed away. And so that is the future that we have to look forward to. There will be no more sickness, no more pain, no more death. Okay, we're going to accelerate now a bit, folks. So we're now moving on to uh, point number three, that in the midst of we acknowledge the reality of suffering, we anticipate an unimaginably better future. Thirdly, we experience frustration. It's the first time I've had a sermon point that says that. We experience frustration. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is that we are caught between the now and the not yet. We're we're caught between the reality of suffering and the great future that we have ahead of us. And in the midst of that, we experience suffering. And uh, Romans chapter 8 verses 20 to 22 says this, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And so it's particularly in the context, I want to use this metaphor of childbirth. And uh, obviously I've not given birth to a child, um, but, I, but I know that it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's very painful. In fact, I remember once... Um, after one of our children was born, I, w- I went to um, a certain church and I was speaking to someone and said, oh yeah, we've just had a baby. And, and the first thing the guy said, um, and he said it genuinely, he said, was it painful for your wife? And I said, can I just take you to one side and say, you must never say that <laughs> and never say that to a woman either. Um, and, and, you know, pain, uh, childbirth is painful. There's a sense of suffering in it. And what Paul is saying here is actually... That suffering, um, following that suffering, comes the birth of a child. And so um, I know, um, talking to some women, this may uh, that the sense that the child to come carries you through that pain and that suffering because you know what is going to come, that a wonderful life, a wonderful new life is going to arrive. And this is a great image, I think, of our present reality, that sense of pain and suffering that we experience in this, this lifetime towards what is to come in the future. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time, this anticipation of what is to come in the future. And uh, for those of you who've been present at, at a birth, you know that sense of we just want this to hurry up. Come on, let's get through this so that we can actually see the life that is to come. And then when the life does come, well, isn't it wonderful, that wonderful life that you hold in your, your arms and the sense of joy and excitement. And this is the picture that Paul is seeking to convey. And so not only does the whole of creation that is, is not human um, anticipate this, but also there's an anticipation for those of us who are, uh, or all of us are humans. For all of us, there is an anticipation for all of us of, of the coming of that day. And so Romans chapter 8, verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly wait, await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so those who have the first fruits of the Spirit also experience this frustration. And I think that's a godly frustration that as the Spirit of God resides in us, there is a taste of the glory that is to come. And with that taste comes the desire for something even more amazing, which is the time when God returns and brings us all to himself. 
It's a bit like when you're hungry and you know you've got a nice meal to look forward to and you taste something or you can smell something of the food to come and it builds your anticipation of that reality that you're going to be enjoying in a few hours' time. Ephesians 1.13 says, Having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. God has given us the deposit of the Holy Spirit. And so as we're in this place of, uh, of frustration, quite literally, between the suffering that we're experiencing now and the future hope we have to look forward to, there's perhaps two things within that, that I want to apply here. Firstly, that God wants to stir a hunger in us. Okay? He wants to stir a hunger in us to seek him, the drawn ear. You know, he wants us to step into him. But also, for some of us, there will be that sense of actually the suffering and the pain and the challenge within that. And so in that place, we will experience that frustration and we may be crying out to God just as the psalmist did. You know, God, where are you? Awake, come and help me. Come and be alongside me. And then that moves us on to our uh, brief and short last point, which is we require patience. We require patience. If we're stuck between this place of the suffering and the reality we face now and then the future glory that we've got to look forward to and in that place experience frustration, how do we wait? Well, we wait patiently. We anticipate that God will come, that he will come one day. And so Romans chapter 8, verses 24 to 25, we read, For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait patiently. And that's where I want to leave us this morning, is actually to say, in this place of future hope, we have this wonderful picture of what is to come, but we need to wait patiently uh, for God's glory to come.